Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. From WBEZ Chicago, I'm Greta Johnson, and this is the Nerdette Book Club. This month's selection is Susie Yang's White Ivy, and Susie is our guest today. If you haven't read the book yet, don't worry. This discussion is totally spoiler-free. We will have a super spoilery panel chat later this month. The book is a, it's a page turner. It's about Ivy Lin, who's the daughter of Chinese immigrants. And as a kid, she kind of falls for her classmate, Gideon Spire, who's sort of like the ultimate New England waspy golden child. And essentially, her obsession just never really ends. And as a result, Ivy can be really ruthless in her attempts to kind of fit into some of the more gilded corners of American society. Susie, welcome to Nerdette. Thanks for having me, Greta. So um, I really loved the review that was written in the Washington Post about White Ivy, um, partly because it placed this in the genre of books about high society and social climbing, like The Great Gatsby or Talented Mr. Ripley or the House of Mirth. Um, mm. White Ivy, I think, does really set itself apart because, you know, you're framing the story around a young Chinese woman, Chinese-American mm. woman. And I I wonder, like, how do you feel about that lineage? Were those books that you were kind of hoping that White Ivy might be in conversation with as you wrote it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when I was writing it, I was sort of just writing it, you know, in the dark. I didn't have expectations of publishing. You know, I was working a different job. So for me, Mm -hmm. it was really just trying to write something that I loved. And those three books you mentioned, I mean, are some of my top favorite books. I've read them dozens of times. So I love the story of a really ruthless, you know, social climber. And you kind of combine that with the glamour. Um, And I didn't think that, you know, it wasn't almost a conscious choice to say, let me frame this around, you know, a Chinese American girl. In fact, I think very, very early on, I wrote, um, I was living in Greenpoint in Brooklyn at the time, which is a very Polish mm. neighborhood. And so I think I was trying to write a Polish girl because I was living there and really inspired, you know, <laughs> and then I thought, you know, I would have to do a lot of research for this character, which I'm very lazy at. So, um, so actually this book came to me because of the first sentence, which was um, Ivy Lynn is a thief, but you would never know it to look at her. And I just had this image of this very innocent looking, you know, Chinese American girl shoplifting. And I thought, oh, that's so interesting because I found the paradox between her, you know, very childlike appearance and being taken by society as a very, you know, docile, obedient person. And then her inner, you know, her inner schemings. And I found that type of contrast really interesting. And that's how um, the character of Ivy evolved. And obviously, when I look back, it feels so obvious, you know, I'm Chinese American, it makes so much sense to kind of draw on my lineage. But really, the, the decision was more based on, you know, writing the kind of books that I love. And also, this image of this, you know, girl who would be really um, kind of misinterpreted by society. Yeah, I mean, I think it's such a fascinating subversion of, you know, like the model minority trope. Yes, yeah. (laughs) I mean, it it definitely goes back to her appearances, you know, and being kind of just labeled a certain thing and then not being that way at all. Mm -hmm. I think it's also really interesting to think about it. I mean, you know, we mentioned books like Great Gatsby and White Ivy too, I think is like, 
the the social climbing thing it's so american right mm. like the american dream all of it it's so interesting to think about it from the like to put an extra layer onto like the outsider element that you're working with i think you know yeah it's i think the american dream is it's very aspirational <laughs> and i think the idea of an, kind of an outsider kind of wanting to pierce into kind of like a different social class that's that's very iconic and universal yeah there's also something just like deliciously soapy about it too you know yeah <laughs> every edith wharton novel i love them exactly do you think i don't know it was interesting reading this book too thinking about how important class plays into it because i think especially when it comes to like conversations i think that especially white people are having around race these days we're often forgetting to mention class as well and i feel like it's so prominent in this book yeah i i would say I thought a lot more about the class, you know, difference more than the racial differences, because for Ivy, mm-hmm. you know, she goes to um, the sporting school where, you know, everybody else is very wealthy and she's kind of their own scholarship. And so she wants the nice things, you know, she sort of wants um, like the beautiful things that money can buy. And she really just, I think she wants sort of the, the legitimacy of belonging to that class. So I did want to make that statement that um, class isn't just about money. It's really about, kind of feeling a sense of belonging and security, a feeling of legitimacy, um, which which Ivy is striving for. Well, and it is interesting to think about how kind of like symbolically the the shoplifting plays into that, right? Because there is like, when it comes to the idea of materialism and ownership, I think that plays into it too, right? Because it's just like, there's a facility with having all of the things that, and you just don't even think about it anymore when you have them, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think it goes back to security, which I think is a very immigrant concept. Mm-hmm. You know, I know that that's something that my parents talked so much about, which is, you know, having your own home or just feeling like you have a sense of, you know, if something goes wrong, I can still take care of myself. You know, the world isn't going to collapse. Um, I mean, obviously, Ivy's ambitions are different from her parents, but I feel like some of that fear, you know, and 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 not having a sense of security really motivated her. But it kind of, but her, you know, her fears kind of manifest in a different way than her parents, you know, which is study hard, right, get a good job, which I think is a very typical immigrant parent thing to say to your kid because you're so motivated mm-hmm. by the sense of um, not having that security. But for Ivy, it's you know, why should I settle for these really you know boring jobs? I want more than just security. You know, I want like a really grand life. Um, So I think those values definitely trickled down to her. It was interesting. I recently just finished a book called Gold Diggers. It's by Sanjina Satyan. Are you familiar with it? No, I'm not. It's very different from White Ivy, but it's about the son of Indian immigrants. Mm -hmm. And I thought like a theme that I saw in both of those books that I think is really interesting is the idea not only of like trying to live up to the really intense expectations of your parents, but also the idea of kind of being forced to invent what it means to even exist in America. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I think reinvention is something that I'm really interested in as a topic. I personally identify, I mean, I'm a Gemini, so I really identify as somebody who, you know, kind of my mood will change depending on who I'm with. Um, And so I definitely think that I'm drawn to characters like that. And I gave Ivy the desire to kind of um, like shed her background and shed her, almost shed her cultural heritage. Um, And I think about what you said about particularly that like kind of reinventing yourself in America that's definitely true for second generation, you know, the kids immigrants, because you don't have mm-hmm. necessarily a blueprint on what success looks like. Because, you know, on one hand, you have your parents telling you one thing and wanting one thing for you. And on the other hand, you have your peers, who, you know, are living really different lives, and you're kind of stuck somewhere in between. So it really is 
it's almost like a little tribe where you kind of look at each other and it's like, you know, I, I talked to my kind of Asian American friends and it's like, was, you know, was life like this for you? You know, what, what kind of things do you want? And it's, it's even to see what's possible. I mean, I know for me, like even being a writer professionally, it wasn't something that I knew I could do until, you know, I had a friend who went through an MFA process and I thought, wow, this is something that I could pursue. So I just think that exposure and like having, and like knowing what's possible um, and what, you can define a success that's like so important because I think a lot of kids they just grow up insulated without the awareness that you can do that yeah totally so I feel like we've kind of hinted at this but I mean Ivy is not a likable protagonist I think it's fair to say (laughs) Um, which certainly isn't new and especially in terms of female protagonists but I think it's something that people really gravitate towards why do you think I don't know. Why do you think people are so delighted by women who ruthlessly just ask for what they want? <laughs> I mean, I'm really happy that, that you think a lot of people do. I mean, my my fear was, you know, is this too extreme? You know, is everyone going to just huh. hate her so much, you know? Um, but I'm with you on a personal level. I really like kind of Machiavellian characters because I guess for me, I, I just... I just feel like all of us have, you know, whether we act on them or not, we have like darker impulses, right? And I feel like characters who are written to be very self-righteous, I find that really irritating. (laughs) So to me, I do differentiate between, you know, how somebody thinks or how they grapple with their, you know, more kind of just like worse or impulses, but then also their actions. So I think that that like constant struggle, you know, it's like man versus self is really interesting. You know, you kind of feel a certain way, but then you're kind of inhibited by, maybe your conscience or your morals. Um, and of course, Ivy, con- like her morals continuously degrade <laughs> along the story, um, which mm-hmm. I found a really interesting arc. Um, so I think people just I, probably identify with that. And they also find it more entertaining because it's always more fun to watch somebody um, like be very proactive. Like if somebody is really motivated to do something, even if it's something terrible, you're still you know, invested in the outcome? Like, do they get what they want? Right? Like, do they, like, how far mm-hmm. are they willing to go to get that? And I think seeing somebody's decision making process on, you know, just what they're capable of doing, and how far they're going to, you know, take the scheming, I think that's really um, entertaining. I think it makes us reflect on ourselves. I feel like if every character is very reasonable, I think it would be quite dull in literature. (laughs) Yeah, that's not a fun book. Well, I think there's like an enticing aspect to it, too. And it is so fascinating to to figure out where the line is, because I think there is a line that can't be crossed. Right. And like (laughs) and it exists. I mean, in some ways, there are several in this book. But like, I think it, it is really interesting to think about. I don't know what it would be like to kind of stand at the precipice of that line and Mm. and think about what you would do if you're in that position. Yeah, absolutely. I think too, I don't know, like I, I, I kind of get being conflicted about unlikable narrators because there's also a part of me that just really likes to like things that are likable, you know? (laughs) And, and I've actually been thinking about it a lot lately and it seems to me that something that's really important when it comes to a character who you might not agree with is that you can at least understand how they came to make the decisions they did. Like there needs to be a believability around it. And then I'm much more happy to go along for the ride as opposed to reading a book where I'm like, okay, but that like, that's not what would happen. The email address (laughs) thing is a lie. You know, like, you know, if you don't believe it, you're just constantly like kind of rolling your eyes as you read along. 
it sounds like that's something that you were conscious of as you wrote, right? Yeah. And I think that's why I spent such a long time um, kind of writing the childhood parts because I, I'm such a sucker for kind of coming of age stories. I like to know the roots of you know, how a person came to be who they are. So I definitely spent, I would say, the most time when I was writing the first draft, just on the first you know, 50 to 100 pages of IV's hmm. kind of childhood. And I rewrote those chapters um, over and over again. Um, and I, I think it's for that reason, which she stated, which is I wanted people to understand her. Um, in fact, I think when readers tell me things like, you know, I was so angry <laughs> later on, you know, I was so angry mm-hmm. with her or I threw my book across her, I was so furious. Um, <laughs> I'm like, that's great. You know, because I think, I, I, I think one of the pleasures of reading is to have strong emotions, right? I mean, whatever those may be. <laughs> um, so I think that's very that's a very reasonable you know reaction. I've definitely felt that way about some of my favorite books, where you just hate you know the choices that somebody makes mm-hmm. and you kind of want to shake them. I mean, the first example that comes to mind is Scarlett O'Hara. You know, I love that. I love Gone with the Wind. So, <laughs> you know, but it, it's still so pleasurable because you just find her ridiculous, you know, but you also find her pitiful yeah. sometimes. So, I, I mean, to me, as long as as long as the you know the reader, like you said had that sense of being rooted and understanding Ivy's choices. Um, that was that was my only goal. So this book, and we have done a very good job of not revealing <laughs> any of them, but there are a couple like pretty amazing. And there was one turn that I was not expecting at all. And I was just like, oh, my God, I am all in. Like, I was just so delighted by by the surprise. Are you one of those people who sort of like followed the story as it went to see what would happen as you wrote the characters? Or did you map out the plot before you started? Um, somewhere in between I so I mm. I always knew what would happen I'm the sort of person when I think of a you know of a book or a story I always I always need to know the whole picture first I need to know where this mm-hmm. where these people are going and you know and how they how they get there um, so the plot has never changed from the first sentence um, I think a lot of the drafts in the middle was um, how do how do I get there? You know, if do I need to, sure. you know, show show certain scenes or you know have more character development in these areas? But um, all the all the twists, you know, all the kind of the character um, who they ended up being and how they ended up changing throughout the book, I always knew um, what their character arcs were going to be. After the break, I'm going to talk to Susie about the fact that White Ivy is going to be a TV show. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. I was thrilled to learn that White Ivy has been optioned. Shonda Rhimes has the rights to White Ivy. She's going to turn it into a Netflix show, which is thrilling. Um, I have talked to a bunch of writers about adaptation. And I I mean, I can't imagine how complicated it is. You know, Mm -hmm. like you've put this thing out in the world. I've talked to writers who want nothing to do with the adaptation Mm -hmm. and who are sort of like, nope, I'm going to trust the screenwriters. Like... You know, I did my job. They're going to do their job. I've also talked with people who, you know, want to maintain as much creative control as possible over this thing that they made and, you know, are really thrilled to kind of take part in helping get it onto the screen. Where are you on that spectrum? I'm definitely more on the former. Um, 
like very early on before it was option, my agent, you know, asked, you know, would you be interested in adapting? You know, do you have interest in that area? And I just thought, no, like I just became a novelist. <laughs> let, me, um, <laughs> let me just focus on this one thing for now, you know? Um, so very early on, I just thought there was people out there who are such great screenwriters and, you know, television is having a golden age. I feel like there's so many great oh, shows. Totally. So, you know, why, 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 I don't have any control issues, you know, I don't feel like I would do a better job. So to me, it was mm-hmm. just, um, yeah, just kind of letting it go. And then obviously when um, Shondaland optioned it, it was such a dream, you know, dream um, collaboration. And I have full faith <laughs> that they know absolutely what they're doing. So I'm just as excited to see what the end result will be as, as everybody else. Oh, that's so exciting. I do think there is a nice amount of like emotional distance if you're able to be like, you know what, I'm just gonna let them do their jobs, you know? Yeah, I, we'll see what happens. I think for me, once it comes out, it almost feels like it's it doesn't have anything to do with me anymore, if that makes sense. Like I haven't even totally. opened the book since it came out, because it feels sort of like, hmm. like, I tend to just move on to the next project um, without that much emotional package. <laughs> I mean, I I think that's very that's very good for you. I would guess yes, <laughs> it seems so. like a healthy response. Anyway, <laughs> is there anyone who you would like love to see in the cast, or are you contractually not allowed to say? No, I mean, I I feel like I have these like discussions with my agent. We'll be like, who's our dream cast? I feel like everybody I know are like too old. I'm still like, oh Matt Damon, he'd be a good Gideon. You know what I mean? And I'm like, <laughs> maybe Matt Damon could be the father. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I don't, I don't know who the really cool young, um, actors and actresses are. I think somebody said Timothy Chalamet. I, I just watched him Ooh. in, um, was it the King? He did this like period piece on Netflix. I watched it. He's great. Um, I, I don't know. He's I mean, dreamy. yeah, I love, um, Rooney Mara. I think she'd be such a great Sylvia. Oh, um, totally. so yeah, I mean, I just like, I feel like my vocabulary of who are the really great young actors and actresses is really limited. I get that. I feel like the only one I really know of is Noah Centineo, who is oh my God, goes to, I to all the him. boys' yeah, movies, who's like one. just a sweetheart. Just so the, I did look out how old he was just to be like, how creepy is this I that I really adore this person? <laughs> oh my gosh. So you've mentioned that writing was not, writing wasn't even like your second career choice, right? You've gone on a journey through your life. Yes. Um, I went to pharmacy school um, for for six years as one of those combined undergrad and grad programs. Um, and mm-hmm. I really hated that. So after I got my degree, I went to, I moved to San Francisco where I worked in tech um, for like four years. But I think, I mean, I touched upon it a little bit earlier where I said I didn't even know that being a writer professionally was something I could do at this point in my career. Yeah. I, I always thought that I would, you know, have to have a stable job and maybe if I retired I would be able to pursue it full time but I think like so many other writers like I've always been writing you know what I mean like since I was a kid mm-hmm. but just in secret <laughs> like I would write and you know I would write I would fill all these notebooks and I would like throw them away because I thought okay this sucks I don't want anyone mm-hmm. to read them so to me it didn't feel so when I was writing White Ivy I didn't feel um like I did it because I wanted to give myself the accountability of being able to finish um a novel because up to that point I'd started you know like dozens of novels but I was never able to finish anything because I just got bored of it and I thought I can't say you know I want to be a writer if I'm not able to finish a book so I thought let me just see if I can do it um and that didn't feel that different from what I'd already been doing you know for my life which is just writing for fun writing for myself um Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, so the transition, I think, on the surface appears really abrupt, but um, actually it was it was just more of what I was already doing, if that makes sense. 
Well, yeah, I mean, it, I don't know. It seems to me like so much of it is a matter of like actually giving yourself permission to call yourself a writer, you know? Yeah, yeah. To, to treat it seriously, I would say. Like I took my first writing workshop ever too when I was writing the book and it was so eye-opening to just take fiction seriously, you know, to not just, you know, read it and put it away or to just say like, oh, I like really love it, but to actually think about craft and to um, kind of almost hope for the, for the, for the future where you can do it as a, as a profession. Is it fair to say then that you had kind of low expectations in terms of what the response would be like to White Ivy? I have no idea about any, I mean, readers to me were completely unreal until, um, until the book came out. So because, you know, we're, we're trapped in quarantine. <laughs> right. The book came out in the middle of the pandemic. Yeah. It came out in November and it also came out on election day oh, God, <laughs> in, in the U S. So I mean, it's just, you know what I mean? I had no expectation all of last year. I remember it just, whether it was good news, bad news, it felt like I was, absolutely resigned to anything like I was just floating along the river and wherever the river carried me that's where I would end up so I think Mm -hmm. I just sort of freed myself at all from um, trying to have a sense of control like if people would be like okay like this is happening I'd be like this is wonderful so so I think that helped actually in a way because the whole world was so crazy that it didn't feel that important. <laughs> Does, if that makes sense, you know what I mean? God, it, totally. It almost just sort of like, it just so, almost like, you know, whatever happens, happens. Um, and then when the readers actually started reading the book and, you know, commenting and giving feedback, that's when it felt real to me. Like there's people I don't know somewhere in the world reading it. And that was such a cool feeling. Yeah. Susie, I feel like you must have a really good therapist. <laughs> I wish. I'm looking for a good therapist. I've never been, but I definitely want a good therapist. <laughs> I just feel like, I don't know, the way you're processing all this stuff, it's just like, okay, awesome. Like you were just along for this great ride, it seems like, <laughs> even if it's not great all the time, you know? I think it's my personality. I'm, I'm typically, I typically live mostly in my own head. So I think... Um, Yeah, I think I'm just a little bit more probably detached (laughs) than most people. (laughs) Well, and as a Gemini, are you either like super chill or a total wreck? (laughs) I think so. Yeah, it's sort of like where you, you know, you have a lot of stress building up, but you don't realize it until, you know what I mean? Until like some critical moment where you're like, oh, I was stressed out. I didn't know. This is it. Found it. That's me. (laughs) Well, Susie, thank you so much for chatting with me. This was really fun. This was so fun. Thanks for inviting me on. Susie Yang, her book White Ivy is the Nerdette Book Club pick for this month. That means we will have a panel discussion of the book in the feed in two weeks. If you've already read it, or even if you haven't finished, but you have opinions, send them our way, record yourself on your phone, and then email the file to nerdettepodcast at gmail.com. And speaking of books, we're going to try out an event in June called the Nerdette Virtual Book Society. We're going to do some book matchmaking with the Chicago bookseller, and we'll have some genre-based breakout rooms where you can share what you're into and get some recs and get to know other Nerdette listeners. I'm really excited about it. It's going to be on the Zooms on June 8th. For more information on that, you can head over to wbez.org slash events. The show is produced by me and Isabel Carter. Our executive producer is Brendan Banzak. All right, we'll see you on Friday. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen 
as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.